Yehuda Geber with another Jewish History Soundbites podcast, and being that it's a very a special and important date in history, it's the 75th anniversary of the D-Day Normandy invasion, June 6, 1944. So we'll, um, you know, uh, focus on this this um, this story, this turning point in World War Two. And although we can speak about the war situation and the invasion for hours, but um, first of all, we're definitely not going to bore you for hours. And second of all, we, being that it's a Jewish history soundbites podcast <clears throat> and not a World War II military history one, um, we'll try to focus a little bit on um, starting off by Jews and D-Day. I think we'll kind of move over to Jews in general in the... U.S. military during World War II, or even um, Jews in general in the military in World War II, because that's definitely a story to be told. The context of the D-Day invasion is, of course, the American and British armies opening up a second front um, um, in the West. They invade Normandy, France, from England, and this is already towards the end of the war. Um, the the German army is being beaten back. They've been thrown out of North Africa. They've been uh, they've been the Sicily and Italy have already been invaded. Um, they're basically by Rome at that point. And um, in the east, the Russians have been pushing back ever since the German Sixth Army surrenders at Stalingrad in February first, nineteen forty three. Friedrich Polis surrenders the Sixth Army, the greatest German military defeat on the east, and since then the tide turns and the Soviets, the Red Army, take the initiative and start pushing back in the eastern front. So, of course, in the Far East is a whole other front with the Japanese and Americans, but that's uh, less related to uh, what we're discussing here. Actually, in the same summer, and a few weeks later, June 23rd, the greatest military campaign of the entire war, perhaps in military history, takes place on the Eastern Front, Operation Bagration, Bagration, I'm not sure how otherwise to pronounce it. Um, the Red Army makes a huge, massive offensive, destroying close to 30 German divisions by the end of the summer, and they recapture the entire Belarus. They move into Eastern Poland and Lithuania by the end of the summer. They recover enormous amounts of territory, and destroy the German army group center. So that happens on the east at that time, and that is definitely a, probably a bigger and more important invasion than, than D-Day, but because of, it's in the west and because it's opening a second front in, in France, D-Day captures the headlines, and that's, that's the focus of the, of the story. So there's definitely many Jews in general serving in the U.S. Army at the time, in fact, more Jews served in the U.S. Army than any other Allied army. There is about 550,000, over half a million Jews serving in the army, both in the Far East and in the European theater of operations, and in all different capacities. There's Jews serving in combat. Um, a colleague of mine told me recently that his grandfather was, uh, is not a Holocaust survivor, but he was in Europe during World War II, being shot at by Germans because he was on the front lines in a foxhole in France during that time. And there's also Jews serving in other capacities in the U.S. Army, like every other segment of the, of the population. Um, 
Jews serve in the Soviet army too, for the same reason. The Red Army, there's about a half a million Jews, and about uh, close to 200,000 Jews in the Red Army are killed in battle. I always say, challenge my groups when we bring them to either Yad Vashem or into any of our Europe tours where we encounter the Holocaust and we talk about the sheer numbers of victims. And I say to them, if I give you a profile of a Jew killed in Eastern Europe by a German between the years of 1939 and 1945, is he a Holocaust victim or not? And the inevitable answer is, of course, he is. And I tell them, well, 200,000 Jews were killed as soldiers in the Red Armies. I'm not sure if exactly they can be classified as Holocaust victims, but that's obviously a different topic. Now, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion if Jewish participation in the armies, both in the Red Army and the U.S. Army, as well as the other armies, was a response to what was going on in the Holocaust or to Nazi anti-Semitism. And a lot claim that, yes, it's hard to prove there was a very strict and strong draft law, both in the Soviet Union and in America, and uh, therefore Jews had to participate in the army. It's highly likely that it was it was it was very it was quite rare that someone uh, served specifically in the army because he was a Jew and felt bad for what was going on in the Jews. Um, as evidence of that, we know that um, the United States law had a regulation that you know. Of course, this is related to current events in Israel at, uh, as we speak, but the United States had a law. That, that allowed deferment for divinity students. And just like Catholics had divinity schools, so yeshivas were, yeshiva students were considered divinity students, and they were absol- you know, exempted from serving in the army during World War II. By the way, also during the Vietnam War, which is the real cause of the growth of the yeshiva movement in, uh, in the United States. Of course, without the visionary leadership of people like Rabshaga Fievel, Mendelovich, and Urban Cutler, and others, it would never have happened, but what really got the numbers going in the American yeshiva movement was the draft law of the Vietnam War and the deferment clause for divinity students. All of a sudden, everyone wanted their child to be learning in yeshiva because they didn't want him to be in Da Nang. But that's a topic for the Vietnam War and the American yeshiva movement, so we again went off on a tangent by accident. So we're going back to World War II. Many people are asking for deferments uh, from yeshivas to be part of a yeshiva so to get out of the army. So even though it was a time when, you know, when, um, when, you know they, there was a, a lot of patriotism and an important war, and it was essentially also um, there were Jews suffering out there. But at the end of the day, to go into battle is scary and dangerous, and there are people who definitely wanted to get out of the army, and there's, uh, there's probably nothing wrong with that either. Uh, the famous... Um, Orthodox Jewish officer in the U.S. Army, Mayor Birnbaum, who lived here in Yerushalayim until uh, um, uh, a few, I, I was privileged to meet him and interview him and speak to him many times about his army experience. And, and he also wrote it in a book, in his autobiography. He described how he tried getting an army deferment. He spoke to Rav Yitzchak Hutner and asked him if he could be registered in Chaim Berlin. And Rav Chaim Berlin said, you're not in the yeshiva, you're a working guy. You're not officially in the yeshiva, and even though we know each other, and I like you, and we sometimes learn together, but you're not officially registered in the yeshiva, and I cannot give you an honest, uh, good faith, your yeshiva deferment. And he ultimately went to the army and fought on the front lines, and he arrived at the Normandy beaches just a few days after 
the uh, D-Day invasion, actually. So he was part of that whole story as well. So there is, but the, 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 the invasion at D-Day actually has reverberations on the other side of Europe. Um, incredibly enough, um, people, Jews under Nazi occupation heard about the Normandy invasion, and this instilled them with great hope. Um, Emanuel Ringelblum, who at this time, of course, the Warsaw Ghetto was already gone. And Ringelblum, the great archivist and historian of the Warsaw Ghetto, is in hiding in a bunker in the other side of Warsaw. And um, I'm sorry, not Ringelblum. Ringelblum was already dead by then, excuse me. But one of the other, the last surviving members of the archive, wrote that the, uh, that the invasion at Normandy gave them, uh, instilled in them with great hope. They thought that this would be finally the end of the war. Um, um, that's a correction. That was not Ringelblum. It was uh, someone else. I'll have to look that up, uh, who, who specifically it was. But I do remember reading that. And um, we have another, another incredible story. We have two Jews who escaped from Auschwitz on May 27th. This is a few weeks after the very famous escape of Auschwitz from Rudolf Verba and Alfred Wetzler. So a few weeks later, two other Jews, one of them was a Polish Jew, Czeslaw Mordowitz and Arnest Rosen, they escape on May 27th from Auschwitz. A few days later, they arrive in Slovakia, and they hear about the June 6th D-Day Normandy invasion, and everyone was saying that the war is over, and there's the, the resistance is going to rise up against the Nazis because the Americans are in France. That's it, the war is over, the war is won, the Nazis are, are finished. And these two Jews who had just escaped Auschwitz, they went to celebrate, and they got a little shicker, and they celebrated. They were so excited, this terrible war, this terrible everything is over. And when they got drunk, they paid for their drinks with, um, with a foreign currency that they had smuggled out of Auschwitz, which at Auschwitz, obviously, Jews had been being sent from all over Europe. So there was all kinds of foreign currencies that there was smuggled around and taken by different Jewish prisoners who had access to it. And, um, and once they had that foreign currency, they were arrested by the police and the whole story about how they were able to get out of that mess. But you see how the reaction to D-Day even reached recent escapees from Auschwitz and Slovakia about how the war is now going to be over. And that was very exciting and filled a lot of hope throughout Europe. So some Jews who participated in the D-Day invasion or immediately afterwards, in the months afterwards, not all of them came on June 6th, but in, uh, in general a lot of Jews were in the U.S. Army at the time. It was quite a famous one, a guy named Mickey Marcus, who was a, uh, a career officer. He was actually a West Point graduate. He was quite an assimilated Jew. And he um, was attached to the 101st Airborne Division of General Maxwell Taylor on June 6th. And one of the first soldiers to land on French soil in the early hours of June 6th of D-Day he flies in with the paratroopers, even though he did not have any paratrooper experience. And he was a, a military hero even before that. And he remains on the front lines for the first few days of the D-Day invasion. He later becomes the first general of the Isra Israeli armed forces. He's recruited after the war to come to Israel and help build him. This is a Jewish military officer with a lot of military experience. And the Israeli army could use it at the time. He was shot by friendly fire near Telstone, near where Telstone is today, um, unfortunately in a very terrible accident during the War of Independence, 
and he was brought back to the United States by Moshe Dayan and buried in the West Point Military Cemetery. But Mickey Marcus was a Jewish soldier on D-Day um, with the 101st Airborne Division. Another uh, incredibly uh, incredible story with a Jew who was not there on D-Day, but he arrived shortly afterwards, a couple of months afterwards, in the summer of 1944. He arrived in France, was the highest-ranking um, Jewish general of World War II, and the highest-ranking U.S. military general killed during combat in the European theater of operations. A Jew named Maurice Rose, and his father was a Polish Rav, his grandfather was a Polish Rav, but he was an assimilated Jew. He kept some traditions. He was definitely, Jewish identity was not very high, but he was a major general in, uh, in the 3rd Division um, um, uh, of the U.S. Army during World War II in France. And he was killed literally during the last days of the war, um, in the end of March of, of 1945. He was killed during when he was surrounded by some German tanks um, and he was, you know, tried to get out with his jeep and was unable to do so. There was another Jew who arrived um, slightly afterwards in France, the later later uh, stage of the uh, invasion. He had actually been a injured in the Battle of Monte Cassino in Italy, and then he was transferred to to uh, France. Uh, a Jew by the name of Raymond Zussman. Uh, you can't make up a name like that. So he's definitely a Jewish boy. And he's one of the only uh, Jews to have received the Medal of Honor. He was a Medal of Honor recipient for his bravery uh, during the battle in, in, uh, in France. He was actually killed during the, ba- the battle. The Medal of Honor was bestowed on him posthumously. The Medal of Honor is the highest military decoration in the U.S. military and is usually bestowed by the President of the United States. We mentioned Meyer Birnbaum was there after D-Day. He eventually was involved in, in uh, the post-liberation uh, affairs of the camps, Buchenwald and Ordov, helping survivors. In the Agudis Yisrael newspaper in the United States, Agudis Yisrael American newspaper, they had this, uh, this recurring uh, article called Our Men in Combat. Incredibly, you can look archived, it's all there in the, uh, in the Aguda archives, the Aguda newspaper. They had lists of the soldiers who were affiliated with Agudis Yisrael, talking about Orthodox soldiers um, who are affiliated with the very early and young Aguda in America. And, uh, and then they were very proud that they, were, had, they had their soldiers in combat on the front lines, or at least in the U.S. Army. And we talk about religious soldiers in the U.S. Army. What were the conditions they faced? First of all, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the U.S. Army at the time. Even though the officers tried to control it, sometimes the officers were part of the problem. Um, even senior officers, George Patton, who was a World War II hero, was quite an anti-Semite himself. And there were others even within the ranks of enlisted soldiers. Sometimes it was even new immigrants, uh, Jews who had arrived from Eastern Europe only 10, 15 years before. Some of them you know, still spoke Yiddish at home. And when they come to the U.S. Army, they speak with accents. And then, then, then that would give them another reason for people to make fun of them, to bother them, to tease them. And here they had to sustain the challenges of military life, not only of the regular challenges, but also the teasing of their own peers. Um, to get kosher food was a challenge. Davening was a challenge. Very often U.S. soldiers would use 
the sefer that the Chafetz Chaim had written for Jews in the Tsar's army over a half a century earlier. He had written a sefer called Machane Yisrael. The Chafetz Chaim, who was the father of Klal Yisrael, was also worried about the Nebuch, the soldiers in Eastern Europe in the Pale of Settlement who were drafted into the Tsar's army. And he wrote a sefer for them, giving them not only a lot of chizik, but also to giving them halachic leniencies that they could do in the army, shortened davenings and putting on tefillin, by Misha Yakir and all kinds of things like that. And Jews in the American army during World War II used that same Sefer of the Chavetz Chaim that was written for Jews in the Tsar's army, using it for a different time. Um, the, the, um, there was the, what about when the Jews arrive in Europe and they're fighting in combat and let's say they're captured during the battle, especially the Battle of the Bulge, the last German offensive on the Western Front, Many American soldiers are captured and sent to prisoner of war camps in Germany. What happens to those Jews? So the Nazis, believing that they did in racial ideology, so it didn't matter what, what country a Jew comes from, so even though they could not access the close to 5 million Jews that lived in America at the time, but theoretically they would be part of the final solution had the Nazis had access to them. So here they have access to several thousand Jews because they're captured as U.S. Army soldiers. And in fact, the Nazis did try to separate these Jews from the other soldiers. Um, this was a policy they definitely did on the East. Uh, captured Jewish soldiers in the Soviet Red Army were separated, were identified and separated and uh, sent to death camps. Um, just this week, the last uh, Sobibor survivor, Sobibor was a death camp, not a concentration camp. There were very few survivors. The only ones that survived were because of the revolt that took place there in, on October 14th, 1943 and 47 um, prisoners from Sobibor survived the war. The last one died this week. He was a fellow by the name of Semyon, which comes from Shimon, obviously. Rosenfeld, a real hero. He was he grew up in the Ukraine and was drafted into the Red Army during World War II. He's captured in the early days of the of the war on the east, in right near Baranovich, ironically. He's sent first to a labor camp in Minsk when he's identified as a Jew, and later to Sobibor, where he's chosen to be one of the few that work. He survives the result, the revolt. He survives in hiding in the forest, and then he rejoins the Red Army at the end of the war. While he's injured in the leg, he joins in the Battle of Berlin, and he gets to the Reichstag. And this 23-year-old boy who had seen it all, who'd been in the death camp, served in the army, and everything, he inscribes on the Reichstag after the German surrender in Berlin, Baranovich Sobibor Berlin. And that was his message after what he had gone through. But in the American army as well, the Germans decided to um, separate American uh, Jewish soldiers from the others. Um, the Varhat Sola in America of, of Irving Bunim and Erblaza Silver, Baron Cutler and others, which is a story in itself, they found out about this. And Irving Bunim petitioned General Eisenhower to drop leaflets in Germany to warn them that they would suffer the repercussions and be tried for war crimes and violation of the Geneva Convention if they separated Jewish soldiers from the others. And that, that plan was thwarted, although some American Jewish soldiers were sent to a concentration camp near Buchenwald called Berga, and it was all kinds of American soldiers there, not only Jews, but especially Jewish American soldiers. And the, the SS who ran the camp perpetrated war crimes against surrendered prisoners of war, violating the Geneva Convention. Some of them were tried after the war, and uh, several American soldiers, among them several Jews, 
were killed or died of the conditions in the Berger concentration camps. You actually did have that on the Western Front as well. It's not such a well-known story. I recently read a book about the Berger concentration camp, about how American Jewish soldiers were forced uh, to work in this concentration camp, and some of them died as a result. There's definitely uh, much more to speak about uh, Americans at D-Day, Americans in World War II, and uh, Jewish Jews on, in serving in the other Allied armies perhaps will find a future opportunity to do so in a future podcast. So this was Yehudi Geber. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, and to book tours. You could subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Don't miss an episode. If you enjoy it, give a rating, good rating. Share it with your friends and family. And you can follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites. And we hope you enjoy.